Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the ISI Life Podcast. Today, I get the amazing opportunity to chat with Clint Longnecker, who is a professor at the University of Toledo. He's also the director of the Center for Leadership and Organizational Excellence in the College of Innovation and Business Growth at Toledo. Clint has an amazing wealth of experience and knowledge, and we get a chance to just talk about some of those things. He's written two uh, and, and many more best-selling books, The Successful Career, Survival Guide, Getting Results. Um, guy's just chock full of wisdom, and it's like drinking, trying to drink from a fire hose. But we have some amazing nuggets, and he keeps things really simple. I think you guys will all enjoy the conversation. We talk about how to thrive in our careers, and then also, most importantly, how to not make stupid choices. So, without further ado, um, welcome to the episode. Till then, stay sharp, everyone. All right, Clint, I am I am so pumped to have you on the ISI podcast um, ever since you came and spoke. So thank you for being with us today. Hey, Nick, thanks. It's a privilege to be with all of you good folks today. And I greatly respect and appreciate you and, and Joe and, your, and Brett and your teammates and the cool things that you're doing as an organization and the cool things you're doing with Iron Sharpens Iron. I think there is no substitute for getting men together to talk about important spiritual dimensions of their lives and, and, and real things. So you're, you're fulfilling a great need for lots of people out there. And I just want to say thank you for the mission that you're on to help us all get better, my friend. It's been a fun one. It's super encouraging. And, you know, uh, thankfully we get to cross paths with people like you who are, are trying to help us, you know, excel in all of our areas. And, you know, I'm excited to have the conversation with you today. So, um, I, I first want to start, I mean, just by so people kind of have an understanding of, you know, who you are, uh, where'd you, you know, where'd you grow up, um, you know, up to current state and what, what are you doing today? Sure. Um, well, I'm a professor at the University of Toledo in the College of Business and Innovation. I'm the director for the Center for Leadership and Organizational Excellence, which means we run a series of leadership academies for our undergraduate students and our graduate students across campus. We do lots of leadership development work with uh, organizations around the country. And so I have been at the University of Toledo for 36 years, which technically makes me an old guy. <laughs> And uh, wow. when I started, I had a thick, full head of hair and a brown mustache. So that if you have a picture <laughs> anywhere floating around, you'll see it's not the years. Uh, in the words of Indiana Jones, it's the mileage. So I've had a very fun and good run at the University of Toledo. I love, I am in the people development business. I'm very happily married to my wife, Cindy, and uh, we've been married for 32 years. We have three kids. We have a son, Clint, who happens to work for the Cleveland Indians. And as I uh, you know, mentioned, your, a lot of your listeners are going to be Indians fans. So he is the guy in charge of uh, running the, the, the draft, if you would. So in his bedroom upstairs, he moved home three months ago from Cleveland, and he's running the Cleveland Indians baseball draft out of his bedroom <laughs> upstairs, which is kind of an amazing thing. We have a daughter, Shannon, who is uh, married and uh, Shannon is a veterinarian. Her husband's an emergency room doctor and they're just neat young people. And we have an adopted son from the Philippines by the name of Steve and his, he and his wife, uh, Gabby, live not too far from here. So we have been very, very blessed. And, and I became a Christian through Athletes in Action. So I was a football player at the University of Toledo. Uh, some people asked me just recently, well, Clint, when you played, did they have face masks? Uh, and I, I played right at the time when they had just kind of introduced face masks. People always say, well, is that what happened to your nose? So anyways, uh, <laughs> I, I, I really had a blessed uh, experience as a college football player. And I came to know Christ 
uh, through Athletes in Action and Campus Crusade. And that thing, that event in my life as an 18-year-old has literally changed the trajectory of everything that I uh, have been able to do. So I am very, very blessed. I am a native of Toledo, Ohio. And uh, I think I hit some key points there. Nick, I, if you have yeah. any questions now, hit me. That, that is amazing. Um, so I didn't know that about Athletes in Action. Was it, uh, just curious, uh, was it during, you know, obviously during your college um, career? Was it early in college, freshman, yeah. sophomore? And, and how did the, how, what took place there? Just curious. Well, it, that's a great point. So I was raised in a very traditional faith. And, and I would say I was raised in a religious family where if you didn't go to church, you were made, meant to feel guilty. And it was always about rules and stuff. So I went to an Athletes in Action camp in August before we started uh, football double sessions my freshman year uh, at Toledo. And so I was introduced to a bunch of really neat professional football players and some people from other universities, and they told me their story. And it really got me thinking. So I took on a, a serious uh, challenge to read scripture and to drill down because I had a faith that it wasn't my own. So my faith was really kind of genetically transferred to me by my parents through the environment that I was living in. And I never made my faith my own until I was 18. I was very fortunate, too, because, you know, as you're going into college, it really helps you kind of get your feet on the ground before you roll up into this environment with lots and lots of temptations and, and crazy things that people can get caught up in. So I was really, really fortunate. My roommate and I made a commitment to Christ within probably a month of each other, and his name is Tom Amstutz. So Tom was our head football coach at the University of Toledo for eight years, and uh, he is the only Mid-American Conference coach to lead a team that defeated Michigan, which I thought was an, a nice signature. And uh, Tom had a very nice run at the University of Toledo. So we have connect, kept connected all these years, but we have that spiritual bonding uh, of brothers in Christ, which has been a great, great blessing to both of us. At least I can say it's been a blessing for me. Now, you'll have to talk to him and see where he's at in all this, right? That's amazing. No, it's so cool. So, man. Roommates and athletes in action. We have um, Tom Petersburg was a gentleman that's been, um, he's spoken at a few ISI events and um, had him on the podcast. And he, I know he was with athletes in action and, you know, uh, for a long time. I think he did a lot of work with uh, pro football too. So yeah. I mean, you, so, and, yeah and I think God used path, football but, in my life to, to, to pull me into his kingdom. And I think there's a great yeah. lesson for us because God will meet us wherever it's time. He will meet us using a medium. It could be a business meeting. It could be a retreat. It could be a negative experience in your life that really causes you to get away to think about things or whatever. But I think God knows each of our hearts and he'll use the medium that he knows can get to us uh, in a most effective fashion so that we can come to know him. And I'm really ever so thankful that it happened when it happened, you know? Wow. Yeah. It's amazing how God works. It's amazing now we can take a lot of that away from current events happening and use it use it in a positive way no question well, you, about it you mentioned uh you know college being a preparatory thing for uh you know temptation and i, I think we're going to touch on a lot of that today as we talk about you know uh, Bathsheba syndrome which we'll get to but um i was going back you know looking at uh, your your amazing talk that you gave at our isi retreat and you had one career question. And as I marinated on that, I thought, wow, that, that is just such a powerful question. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious if that's something that you crafted over, over the years. Um, then the question was, how can leaders get better results more quickly for their organization? 
What a simple way to put it. (laughs) Well, and you know, for me as a researcher, so my background, I grew up in a family business. My dad was a World War II veteran. Uh, He came home from the war after he convalesced. He was injured uh, at the end of the war. After he convalesced, he went to work for my grandfather, who had started a company in 1990, or I'm sorry, 1990, listen to me, in 1921. So he started a floor covering business. So I grew up in the trades, working with my hands and that sort of thing. And my dad's business struggled and got hit with a couple of recessions. So as a 56-year-old, he had to close the business. And it had a powerful effect on me. I was just finishing my MBA at the time. And it was really, uh, I think, earth-shattering is the word I would use to watch my dad's business kind of crumble. And then he auctioned things off and he had to hit the reset button as a 56-year-old. And so I I learned very early on in my career that when businesses fail, there's a cost to families and, and for employment and for all these folks and for the owners and that sort of thing. So early in my days after I graduated from my PhD with Penn, at Penn State University in 1984, I launched into my career. And one of my burning passions is this, what do organizations need to do, what the leaders need to do to avoid failure and more importantly, focus on becoming the best version of themselves. And so I will, uh, so the research that I've done over the course of my 35 year career I've really targeted that question. And that question is basically the, the driving force behind the book called Getting Results that I wrote a number of years ago with, a, with one of my mentors, Jack Simonetti. And the whole focus of everything I've worked on by and large is what can we do to best equip leaders so that they can deliver better performance for their organizations or for themselves and their enterprises, or if they're an entrepreneur, what they need to do to get more successful more quickly, if you would. And that's the driver here. So uh, at the end of the day, I think, and this is amazing, we're living in the information age. This is an exciting time. There's information everywhere about how to succeed. I believe it's really important to think about what causes people to fail because failure and the fear of failure can drive a lot of people to do better work than might otherwise be the case. And I remember several Mm. years ago, I interviewed um, um, the head coach, um, Marvin, forgive me, this is terrible, Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, If he he knew that I was struggling with this name, he would be very upset with me. But Coach Coach Marvin basically uh, did the intro to the book and we were talking and he said, and for my professional players, fear of failure is one of their very, very big things. So I think for a Mm. lot of people, we need to think about be it doing good and stay focused on the positive, but it's also important to understand the factors that could potentially drive failure in any of our lives. And and I've yet to see a leader who failed because she or he did not know what to do. There's information everywhere. If we don't know what to do, and that, that ties back to that very famous quote from John Wayne. He said, life, you know, Socrates said, said it first. He said, the ongoing challenges of life mandates applying all our wisdom to daily situations, lest we fall prey to our own folly. So most people can agree with the premise, you know, life is challenging. And if I don't apply what I know to be true to my life and to my daily situations that I find myself in, I can fall prey to my own Folly. Folly is another word for foolishness. Now, we won't remember what Socrates said, despite his noble intellectual capacities and and wisdom, but we will probably remember what John Wayne said. And John Wayne said it best. He said, life is tough, but it's tougher if you're stupid. Now, let me repeat it just one more time. Life is tough, but it's tougher if you're stupid. Now, I say that not to offend anybody, let alone your listeners today, but the important part is I'm ignorant if I don't know what to do. 
So if I don't know what to do, I need to jump on it and figure out very quickly by interviewing people, talking to people, going online, reading books, going to seminars and the like. All right. But stupid is when I know what to do and for whatever reason, I don't do the right thing. And maybe it's a chronic problem in my business that or a process that's broken or a customer that we have a bad relationship with and we just haven't taken the time to fix. Or maybe I have in my organization a destructive, toxic leader and nobody's willing to step up and touch the, you know, take on the, the problem and solve it along the way. So the, all that stuff falls into the category of stupid meaning it should be fixed. So to be successful in the 21st century, both personally and professionally, we have to be wise. And a wise person is somebody who knows what to do and has built for themselves a model of what they should do. And they have the discipline and the habits to do it and to support it. And they're emotionally intelligent enough to do the things that are necessary to help their own success. So I didn't mean to go on and on and on about that, but this is really an important point. So my advice to so many people these days is, hey, uh, let me give you some advice. Uh, and, and you can give it back to me when I'm finished. Don't do stupid stuff. So if we don't do stupid stuff, we greatly increase the likelihood of doing more of the right things, if that makes sense. So it's all tied together, Nick, when you put it together. And I think the biggest part that each one of us can do, and, and let me just ask a couple of people before we get into our discussion of the Bathsheba Syndrome, here's some questions that I pose to every professional and every leader, regardless of level. You know, question number one, what is your mission? Why are you on earth? Why has God put you here? And I encourage people to stake out the high ground. I'm on earth to be the best husband to my loving wife as is humanly possible. I am on earth to be a great dad to my kids. I am on earth to serve my church and my community. I am on earth to make a difference on a daily basis and to love people all around me. I am on earth all for those very specific things. All right. So that's your personal part. Professionally, what's your mission? Maybe you're on earth to be the best frontline supervisor in a manufacturing organization and to provide world-class product. Maybe you are in a middle management position and you are on earth to build an outstanding customer service team that is the best in the organization where everybody is committed and engaged and developing as a unit. I encourage people to have a personal mission statement. Now, once we stake out our mission statement, the question goes back to what we spoke of earlier. What results do you have to deliver to support that mission? What outcomes do you need to put on the table on a regular basis? And we have found in our research, the number one factor for career success and career survival is the ability to develop a track record of delivering desired results for your employer, for your organization. And so at the end of the day, we have to identify what results and this is so very, very important, especially if you have a boss that's not really a good communicator. We have to help our bosses help us get focused because research in every discipline under the sun says when people are focused, they behave differently than if they're out there bouncing around randomly. So yes. I would go back. Question one, what's your mission? Question two, what results do you have to deliver in every area of your life? Question number three. Now, this is the big one. What activities on your part do you need to engage in consistently on a regular basis to be able to deliver the results you're looking for? So in some ways, this is kind of a math problem. If we're trying to find an outcome, we've got to figure out the activities that have to take place along the way in solving this equation. What activities are most important for your success? 
And I would submit to you, in many cases, it's a matter of planning. In many cases, effective delegation. In many cases, uh, effective coaching of the people or team building activities or problem solving or the ability to make decisions in a timely and effective fashion. So you need to identify the key behaviors that are going to help you get there and be able to engage in those behaviors on a daily basis. Then finally, the last couple points here, and again, I, we're, we're really focusing on drilling down to get to this point about the Bathsheba syndrome, but the important part is now, are you appropriately applying your time on a daily basis to the activities that are most important? Because here's the key. Everybody is busy. Everybody's busy. Now we're coming out of the, the COVID pandemic. We're going back to work and everybody's going to get really busy. So the question is this, busy doing what? Let me repeat it one more time. You're busy. Oh, I got it. Busy doing what? Because the question is this, is your busyness tied directly to the activities that are going to help you get the results that you are focusing on so that you can fulfill your mission? And this becomes gigantically important that we develop habits around the use of our time. And by the way, here's a, a you asked me for some recommendations on books. There's an awesome book written by a fellow by the name of James Clear, and he's an Ohio boy. He's down in Columbus, but he wrote a book called Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits. And that book is all about programming yourself to engage in the activities that will help you be successful and to pr program yourself to do so and to get rid of bad habits, like maybe procrastination or maybe cutting off people in the middle of a sentence or maybe not taking time to effectively plan or maybe not addressing an employee that you need to address because you're afraid of that outcome. So it's all about effective habit making and habit breaking and the application of our time. And I throw just one more thing. And this is an acronym that we developed a couple of years ago. Uh, and it's the word stop. So I'm encouraging everybody to learn how to stop. And so the acronym stop stands for it's important on a daily basis to sit, think, optimize, and then perform. So one more time, sit, be, meaning be still, clear your head and ask yourself the question, all right, deep breaths. Okay, good. Am I focused? Am I going to be able to focus on doing the things that are most important today or am I going to behave in a random uh, fashion? Number two, I need to make decisions how to think about what I want to get done each day of my life. And I need to prioritize activities and I need to be focused and I need to not overreach, put too many things on my plate so that I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off, as the old saying goes. Number three, now I want to optimize. So if I know I have nine hours to work today, I'm going to optimize that time frame so that when it's time to perform, I can perform doing the things that are most important. Now, a lot of us have unpredictable jobs. Wouldn't you agree, Nick? A lot of us. And we're totally. day in and day out. It's highly unpredictable what's going to happen. Is that fair? Yeah, always trying to squeeze five pounds into the three-pound bag. Oh, man, good word picture. Good word picture. So here's the catch. So if my days could be crazy, I need to take four of my hours and make sure that I control those four hours. The other four, maybe I operate and I take things on as they come. But you have to assess 
what it's going to take for you to get focused and do more of the things that lead to desired outcomes. Because at the end, by the way, we do know how to do this because prior to vacations, we are exceptionally mindful about what we do because we don't want to leave and go on vacation with the proverbial sword of Damocles dangling down a thread above our heads. We want to make sure that we are efficient. So I would submit to you that it's a great time to have a strategic stop, sit down and think about the questions, what mission, what, what results am I being paid to deliver? What activities do I need to engage in? And where does my time go? So that's a strategic stop. And that's an alignment that we probably need to have with our spouses, an alignment that we need to have with our bosses, or if we're in a business structure like yours, Nick, an alignment meeting you need to have with your partners, right? Then mm-hmm. we can have a daily stop where we sit down on a daily basis and invest our time appropriately. And it's really an important exercise to engage in and to develop a habit around doing so. At the end, my last comment about this is this important notion of situational awareness. Now, as you know, I do a lot of work for the military, senior leaders, and for the intelligence community. And this is a really important point. They need to be situationally aware because in the environments that they operate in, bad things can happen to them and in lots in lots of different ways. So we need to be situationally aware. We need to be paying attention to our surroundings, to our performance, to the performance of the people around us. We need to be situationally aware about what is coming down the road that can be an opportunity or maybe something coming down the road that might potentially damage or hurt our careers or our ability to be the best version of ourselves. So that situational awareness is critically important. And that's probably a pretty good lead in, if you would, Nick, to this discussion about the Bathsheba syndrome. So, so far yeah, away uh, with your questions. No, I, I love it. I could just, I feel like I have so much to learn from you. Um, You're a nice man, it. but remember now I'm old. And when, so when somebody's <laughs> old, they've learned a few things more often than not by trial and error. Let me just say for our listeners out there, get out in front of things because the trial part isn't the bad part. It's the error part. That's the bad part. So we want to minimize that error part. Oh, that's, uh, I mean, that's really what, you know, ISI is all about is, you know, and it really kind of how we started was who do we know that can bring some wisdom and help us not, you know, fall victim to the same mistakes that have been made. You know, there's some, some mistakes that are helpful to make on your own, but a lot of these things can be avoided. Um, and so that's, that's really how we structured ISI was bringing in wisdom on, on our five F's and, you know, so, you're so speaking Nick, to how- my question is what, what am I doing here then? Come on. Yeah, you're, you're you're bringing a lot of wisdom. You're helping us not be stupid. <laughs> you're kind. I'm going to play that recording to my wife. I need to remind Cindy that. Thank you for the, for the uh, prop there. No, and I appreciate. I mean, it's you know a lot of what you're talking on. It can help us operate at a high level by by doing the things you mentioned. But you also alluded to the fact that just as much as we perform on a high level, one of the things that we have to do is avoid making you know, catastrophic mistakes. And you use this uh, 0.0005%. Um, so talk about that and talk about one decision and maybe give us a, a little bit of a background on what Bathsheba syndrome is. Um, and then we'll go from there. Okay, thank you. That's a, that's a great setup. So if a person has a 40 year career, we did some loose math on this that they make, you know, a, a probably on average, uh, a, a giant number of, of significant decisions, maybe 20,000 decisions over the course of that career. And so when you put this in context, so one bad mistake can derail and potentially destroy somebody's career. And more often than not, a lot of these catastrophic mistakes fall into the category of moral 
an ethical failure. And so in 1993, I'm reading the paper. I'm having a personal devotion. I am reading 2 Samuel chapter 11 as part of my uh, personal devotion. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 11 as part of my personal devotion. And what happened was, and this is pretty amazing, I read about one of my former MBA students in the paper who was caught embezzling a significant amount of funds. And it just did not fit for this guy's M.O., and as it turns out, he was living kind of this duplicious life, uh, uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And he was a community pillar, Eagle Scout, active in his church and all these things. And he was involved in uh, this very wrongful thing. And so at the end of the day, I, at that very day that I read this, I'm reading this, you know, I'm reading scripture and it, and it says, you know, King David in the springtime, when kings go off to war, David chose to stay in Jerusalem. And so, and then he gazes upon Bathsheba from the rooftop, and because of his high position in the in the palace, he was able to see all the things below him, and he saw a woman bathing on a rooftop. As it turns out, you know, it turned out to be the wife of one of his soldiers who was out in the field where he should have been, because it does say in the spring when kings go off to war, David chose to stay in Jerusalem. And so this is really an important lesson for all of us. You know, if we're not about doing what we're supposed to be doing, it's easy to get caught up in wrongful things. The position that you hold, in this case, David's position in the palace, allowed him to look down and see things that somebody who were ordinary people, uh, you know, walking at street level, never would have had an opportunity to see. So then he sends a servant to find a and he says to the servant, you know, please find out who that woman is. So the servant goes and comes back and says, King, I ran down there. Uh, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now he's probably thinking one of your leaders and Uriah the Hittite is mentioned in scripture as one of the 37 greatest warriors in the history of the nation of Israel. So he was a warrior himself. And the, and the servant says, you know, probably thinking, David, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And then David says this, and these are words that changed everything. Go and bring her to me. Then it said that servants, now more than one person, went and fetched the woman and brought him back. They had sexual intercourse. They know, and it was wrong uh, for David to put her in this situation. But at the end of the day, David did something that was utterly wrong and utterly abominable by any standard. But now we're just getting started because one bad thing now leads to another. That she comes to him several weeks later. And by the way, David had on, uh, there's debate about this, but at least seven wives at the time. So from my perspective, it was not about sex. It was about seeing something he wanted. He's the king. He's going to do it. Now, remember what we know about King David. He was a man with God's own heart. He was a man with God's own heart. And so scripturally, that tells me that he morally and spiritually was a strong guy, and yet he chose to engage in this activity because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Nobody held him accountable to do the right thing, and he allowed his imagination and his desires to overwhelm his sense of responsibility and duty. Now, I'll just tell you this. We have just recently had a issue uh, with a, a key Christian leader in our community uh, went down with a, engaged in adultery. All right. And it's had a devastating effect on the community at many, many levels. So it kind of comes back to this fact that David believed he could cover it up. And the rest of the, the account goes 
David brought Uriah back to Jerusalem under the pretense of filling him in on what the nature of the of the war and how things were going along the way. And uh, he ends up basically getting him drunk and trying to get him to go back and sleep with his wife. So to create some cover that maybe he's the one that impregnated her. As it turns out, uh, he said this, because of my commitment to my men, if my men are not with their wives, how could I go and spend the night with my wife? So it says he slept in the, at, the, at the palace or on the steps, if you would. And at the end of the day, David sends him back to his general, Joab, at the front with a note. It just said this. Send Uriah into battle and have him killed. Now, if you're Joab and you're reading this, you're thinking, boy, what did he ever do to flame off uh, David, the boss in this case? And at the end of the day, Joab, being the general that he was, followed his orders. And it says, um, it says Uriah went and fought near the wall. And that day he fell with others. So not just Uriah was killed, but other people were killed as well. So I would encourage everybody to go look up the account. And it's not a story. It's a historical account. And this is really important. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, read it from start to finish, 27 verses, and you'll be okay. But there's so many rich lessons in here. So at the end of the day, Joab sends a note back to David and says, you know, don't. Uh, I hate to tell you this, but Uriah the Hittite is dead. David sends a note back to Joab and says, do not worry about this thing. Things like this happen in war. And so David thought that he was off scot-free. So for those of you who like suspense, uh, we'll stop there. And I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and read chapter 12 of the same book, because you will find very, very quickly that a, a, a chain reaction of horrific things happened in David's life. And David believed that he could cover this whole thing up because he was the king. And that takes us to the term that Nick mentioned, uh, is a term I coined in 1993 with uh, my co-author. So it was Dean Ludwig, Clint Longneck. We wrote a book for an article uh, on the Bathsheba syndrome for the Journal of Business Ethics. And the, and the Bathsheba syndrome is when successful people with track records of hard work, effectiveness, and integrity reach a point in their career where they throw it all away by engaging in an activity which is wrong, which they know is wrong, and which they know would lead to their downfall if discovered. And, and at the end of the day, they mistakenly believe that they have the power to conceal this wrongdoing. And that's the Bathsheba syndrome. So I know that was a long-winded uh, you know, discussion on this. But at the end of the day, here's my question for all of us. What temptations exist in your life because of the position that you hold, that if you were to allow yourself to fall prey to them, could potentially destroy you? And you might say to me, wait, uh, you know, Clint, I'm not a king. And I would go back and say, but the scripture says that we basically are blessed and we all have spheres of influence. And so I would argue and push back and say there are parts of your life where you are king, where you have complete control. So if we're not really careful about knowing and understanding the temptations that we face, anyone can fall prey to this, this fall, if you would. And it's bad, bad stuff for all parties concerned. Nick, I'll take a deep breath here and you re respond. <laughs> no, uh, thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It all started with a temptation. And he just kind of on his story, you know, King David unraveled from there. And um, I think a lot of us probably would fall in the same camp where we think, hey, you know, we're we're men of God, we're good guys. Like this stuff isn't this this isn't going to apply to me. 
But when you look back on history and you, you know, you've used some examples today, it's the people you would never have thought of. You say, I can't believe that that guy, no way. You know, you just never would have thought it would have been that person that that thing happened to. And so, you know, you talked about guardrails, um, a little bit, and that, that's really what kind of you helped us with at the ISI retreat. And we, we had time to kind of deep dive into it, but I wonder if you can give us kind of a rapid fire, you know, go through the 10 lessons, like sure, it's all real. It can happen to happen to all of us. What are the, you know, these 10, you know, touch on all 10, but maybe hit on the highlights or go through them, you know, kind of rapid fire. And what are the things that we can do to build this in proactively? So we, we don't make that one decision that you know, derails it all. Very well said. I think that the best, and again, as a former football player, you know, the best defense is a great offense. So I think instead of sitting back and waiting for problems to come knocking on our door, we need to put a game plan together. And here's the best part about this. Uh, you know, and, and Nick knows this. He even in our warm up conversation before, and he said, Clint, I know you'd rather talk about other stuff. I, I do not enjoy nor relish these discussions around failure because I really like to focus more so on, on helping people be successful. But I believe that this is such an important thing to get our arms around what could happen to us. And, you know, I've been on the phone with uh, this leader in our community that has fallen and it's unbelievable. If he could get in a time machine and go back, he would not have engaged and done the things that he did. So at the end of the day, I think, you know, lesson number one, what temptations do you face in your current position in life? And, you know, and maybe there's a temptation map personally, there's a temptation map professionally, but they overlap so often and so frequently, a temptation map will cover the ground in both cases. So we need to identify the ethical and moral challenges that we face in the landscape that we currently operate in. And that's the most important thing to get this conversation going. And it's a great conversation to have with your spouse. It's a great conversation to have with a Christian brother to sit down and talk about these things openly because it isn't about admitting failure. No, this is quite the contrary. You're getting out in front of this. And in Scripture, and this is great, in James, it talks at length uh, in James chapter 1 about the fact that, you know, God doesn't tempt us. You know, temptation starts in our heart and then it grows. And the word for temptation is to bait a hook. And it's such a graphic word picture. I know we probably got some people in the um, listeners that like to fish. We put, you know, we put a hook in the water, but there's some attractiveness to it by a worm, a minnow, a daredevil spoon to, to attract and to lure the person in. We don't see, we look at the pleasure or the, the benefit in the short run without thinking through the long-term damnating, uh, excuse me, damning effect that something like this can have on a person's life. So we got to get our arms around. Number two, and many business people do SWOT analyses all the time. SWOT, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So it's really important to understand the strengths that you have in fighting off these temptations, but we also need to think about our weaknesses. Where are we vulnerable? Is it financial vulnerability? Is it maybe we're feeling sexually frustrated in some way, shape, or form, and so we are turning to pornography to get at that? Or maybe in some way, shape, or form, we don't believe the government deserves their fair share of what uh, what we're earning, so we might cheat on our taxes in some way, shape, or form. Everybody faces stuff, if you would, but we've got to get our arms around our strengths and the weaknesses we possess, the opportunities that exist for failure, and the things that might crush us. So think about strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats as they apply to moral stuff. Now, next point, most people operate in an environment where they have a corporate or organizational code of conduct. 
Uh, not everybody, but most people do. And like the standards for our profession or the standards for our behavior, we have to take that and make it our own. So in many cases, they, we have giant ethical codes of conduct, and we can't even recite them, let alone you know imper- uh, um, take them and apply them to our own heart and our own behavior. So it's really important to internalize and make your corporate or professional code of conduct your personal code of conduct. Along with that, I encourage people to think about developing a mantra. So a mantra is a statement that will remind you. So like in the military, no man or woman is left behind. So when they're in a situation and there's somebody's wounded out there, and even though life and limb might have to be exercised to bring that person back in, that mantra kicks in, no man or woman left behind. So it's decision-making on the front end. So each one of us needs to develop a mantra that might be useful for us. So for me, I will always serve the Lord, my family, and my community, and my employers part of my community in an ethical and forthright fashion with the greatest of my energy. To that effect, boom. So my mantra, so when I look at something and I'm challenged, I call my mantra to mind. All right, the last couple things are really important. It's really important that we develop guardrails. And so guardrails are things that prevent us from going over the edge. So if we're confronted with the temptation, we build a guardrail three feet, four feet, five feet in front of that. And maybe the issue could be alcohol. So, you know, if you go out and you are engaged with your buddies or a group of people, it's, it's easy for one drink or one beer or a glass of wine to turn into two or three or four. If that's a vulnerability for you, you need to build some guardrails around that issue, whatever that might look like. And I would just go back and say guardrails come in lots of different shapes and forms. We've done a lot of research on this. But here's what here's what military leaders say they have as their guardrails. I've got to have an accountability partner. I have to maintain my situational awareness. I need to spend time on a daily basis for personal reflection and self-awareness around my strengths and weaknesses and the mission that I'm pursuing. I need to be a servant leader. And I think, you know, our scriptures tell us God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think pride is what sets people up for lots of falls along the way. So we need to make sure that we maintain you're on earth to serve other people. And uh, Nick and I were talking earlier on about my favorite life verse. And, you know, it says in scripture very straightforwardly about, you know, Jesus said, I came to serve and to not be served. And so what if you define your life as you're in a position to serve your wife, your family members, your employer with great energy and great acumen? Well, that servant leadership mindset will prevent you from getting caught up in lots of difficult times along the way. Now, I could go on, but we all need a personal code of conduct and we need to make use of the potential guardrails that are out there. Now, I don't want to be accused of being a professor and a professor can frequently be defined as someone who talks in someone else's sleep. So I'll stop and I'll ask Nick if there's any clarifying points before we push forward here. Nick. No, it's really good. I mean, you're giving practical things that we can do. Um, even if you did any one of these, uh, you're going to give, you know, maybe 10, 10 things here, but I think any one of these, you know, the, the question I had, um, you mentioned, you started off with the temptation map um, and you mentioned a great place to go is to talk with your spouse about this. Yeah. Now I'm just curious in practical you know, you got guys on this, um, you know, part of the ISI that are, you know, in kind of my age demographic. What does that look like in 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 reality? 
<laughs> hey, Nancy, I want to I want to talk about my temptations. I mean, walk us through, um, give us some guidance, give us some wisdom yeah. on how to actually do that. See, I think there's a lot of things. So at the end of the day, I think having a great relationship with your spouse covers a lot of ground. And so if people are feeling financially stressed, you got to talk to you. Well, there has to be a discussion with your spouse about spending habits, budgeting, and these kind of things. If people are, if guys are feeling sexually frustrated, there needs to be that conversation with the spouse in a proactive and healthy way. Not to make anybody feel guilty, but basically to talk about what's going on inside your heart. And you know, if you, a lot of folks out there, I think, get caught up in in adultery and wrongful things because they're not. There's a sexual dissatisfaction in their life uh, with their spouse, and part of that is the expectations that our society creates around this this critically important, you know, exchange between a husband and a wife. But at the end of the day, conversation is really gigantically important. And and I would go back to, you know, there's there's three questions that I think are the most important questions that we need to ask ourselves. And if we want to have a great marriage or a great relationship with our kids, here's the three questions. In your life, what are you what are you doing that's really working that you need to keep doing? And ask your spouse that question. Hey, what am I doing? That, and I'm not seeking praise here. I'm just trying to say, what am I doing that really works? And I think that that's a really important point. So if, we're having a, if we have an accountability partner or an executive coach in our life, we should have that person ask us these questions, if you would. But it starts with, what do I need to keep doing? Number two, what do I need to start doing? What, what deficits do I have that I really need to engage in? What behaviors or what things might I do to help you with your station in life? And this is really an important thing. What do I need to start doing professionally and as a husband and as a father? And I think we need input from that as well. Finally, the third question is, what do I need to stop doing? What am I doing that's destructive, that is not, you know, moving the ball forward? What do I do that's a bad behavior that I need to fix along the way? And what if you and your wife had a conversation about that once a month and just sat down, keep doing, start doing, stop doing, so you can align yourselves with each other and ask the same thing of your, of your spouse, if you would. These are important proactive conversations that are necessary to maintain a healthy lifestyle with your spouse, which is the single most important thing on earth. And I would go back and say, I know people who are really good leaders and who are very intentional, but when it comes to their marriage or their kids, that's like an afterthought. Let's take our yeah. business skill set and our business mindset for planning and goal setting and processing, process mapping, and apply that to other parts of our lives so that we can carry over those good behaviors into our most important relationships. Because at the end of the day, your relationship with your spouse is priceless. And yet we need, and, and so if something is priceless, you take care of it, you clean it, you, you, put, you keep it in a safe place. So what do each one of us need to do to make sure that we're doing the right things to support your spouse along the way? And I hope that gives you a little bit, but keep stop and start is really a good place to start for those discussions. And again, nobody's going to come and say, you know, guys, I've really been thinking about embezzling uh, from the company right now. I gotta, I'm just being honest. I'm thinking about I've, there's opportunities for me to embezzle. <laughs> All right. No, you might not share that with a group, but if you had a best friend, an accountability partner, you might call that person up and say, you know what? I'm really struggling with something right now. I've been tempted to do something that's really knowingly wrong. And would you pray for me about this? Would you pray for me? And they don't have to know the details, but the fact that you shared that concern with another human being 
increases the likelihood that you won't engage in that activity. Doesn't that make sense? And isn't that a good, isn't that a good, good thing? So super powerful. at the end of the day, I, I would just throw out a couple more points that I believe in, in my heart of hearts, it is so much easier to avoid temptation than to resist temptation. So if you have an issue, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, maybe picking up a few extra things from work and carrying them home, uh, make sure that you don't, uh, you know, avail yourself the opportunity to do those things or around those things. Uh, you know, if a person is struggling with, with alcohol, don't go to a place where people are drinking. Uh, don't go to, a, if you're struggling with some sexually related thing, pornography is the enemy. And again, one of the issues that we came up in our temptation mapping session at ISS was the fact that, uh, you know, uh, maybe pornography was a, was a thing on that list for people. And uh, as was tax evasion and as was abusing one's power for personal gain. So we all have stuff on our plate. The good news is we can talk about it as mature and growing adult men who want to make a difference with our lives. And so I would go back and just say, man, avoid temptation. It's easier to avoid temptation uh, than it is to resist temptation when you're in the fight. And last couple of points, you got to have an accountability partner. You have to have an accountability partner. And we need to condition ourselves when you're confronted uh, with a potential for wrongdoing. And sometimes it's spur of the moment. Boom, you're, you have a temptation dropped in your lap. Other times there's premeditated temptation. In either case, you have to find a way to quickly remind yourself, what are the costs if I were to be caught engaged in this activity? When my wife finds out, when my spouse, uh, my, my, if, if it's a woman, if my husband finds out, if my kids found out, if my pastor find out, what are the ramifications of this engagement? And I think that line of thinking will really, really uh, help us a long way. And then finally, stay humble. Be humble, stay humble. And you know what? Uh, God puts you on, on earth. Um, not, not, it's not about you as much as it is about serving him in all parts of our life. I had a reporter yesterday. This is a real interesting story. I had a, a reporter. We were doing a story on something. And he said to me, can I ask, uh, as we wrap up the conversation, Clint, how do you incorporate your faith? I noticed in your bio that you're actively involved in lots of Christian things. And how do you incorporate your faith? And, and do you have a hard time incorporating your faith uh, to your work life? And I said, what a good question. And I said, thank you for asking me that question. But at the end of the day, I said, no, because we are whole. I'm a whole person. And I said, I don't walk around the office, you know, telling people uh, about Jesus unless they ask me. But I want to behave in such a fashion that they might ask me so that they'll know. And that's the best part about being a Christian. We are called to love people around us. We are called to take care of other people. And scripture, what's it say? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, all their strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. The same sets of characteristics apply to people. And so all of the things going on right now in the country around uh, you know the, uh, the, the, the killing that took place in Minneapolis with George Floyd, uh, these are conditions of the heart. The, nobody's talking about it that way, but it's true that sin and wrongfulness like this is a condition of the heart. So your job and my job, guard your heart. Guard okay. your heart. And here's my question for you. When you get angry, and maybe you're like me, I, you know, get, I get frustrated over things. At times I get angry. I feel a sense of confusion or, or, or chaos or tumult in my heart. Here's my question. Who's 
voice are you listening to? Who's the strongest voice in your life? And if the strongest voice is social media, if the strongest voice is the news, if the strongest voice is the gossip that comes along with a group of guys sitting around talking about something that's crazy or stupid or nonsensical, if, if that's the voices we're listening to, as we say in the country of Haiti, Lige Ugro Problem Cunha, which means in, in Creole language, you've got a big problem right now. So we have to listen to the voice of Christ. And by the way, if people were listening to the voice of Christ, we wouldn't be doing a lot of the things that we are sometimes potentially getting caught up in doing. And I believe if that, that law enforcement officer would have been listening to the voice of Christ, he would not have engaged in activity. He would not yeah. have engaged. He was listening to some other voice that took him down a dark, dark path. So it all goes back to my friends, I think, thinking about what you can do to be the best version of yourself as a professional, as a husband, as a father, and as a community servant, because the potential in each and every one of us is boundless. We can make a gigantic difference if we make right decisions along our life. So to wrap things up, Nick, I would just say this. I think the biggest thing in my life, I'm thankful. I turned 65 this year, which was kind of an out-of-body experience because I still feel like uh, 40. Uh, Cindy says probably I probably act more like I'm 15, my wife anyway. <laughs> so, But at the end of the day, man, life's going fast. It's going quick. So why would we do things that would take us off path or off mission or off track and set our lives back. And that's the best thing about being a Christian, that he has a plan for my life. And I just have to be quiet enough and stop often enough to listen to what God has to say. And that is especially true in, in the professional and the, in the dad that I am. And it's equally as important in making sure that I do the right thing day in and day out. So love it. I just appreciate cool. you and what you're doing, brother. I do. Yeah. Thanks, Clint. I mean, you're like, it's like uh, drinking from a fire hose, but you've given us so many great things. I mean, I, actually, I've never heard that that last little part that you kind of ended with is who's the strongest voice. Um, I've never heard it put that way. And it's it's so simple and extremely powerful. Think about, yeah. you know, is it is the strongest voice in, in your world, uh, you know, the news? Um, what, you know, what is it? Is it social media? And, and really doing a gut check on that. Cause I think that's a simple question that we could use to kind of calibrate things. So yeah. I appreciate the, uh, the lesson and the, and all the tips. Um, there's, you know, even if, like I said, if you take one thing from this conversation and apply it, um, can help us from making that one wrong decision that, you know, puts us over the edge. So I, I appreciate that. I just want to, I mean, I asked everybody a couple kind of rapid fire questions here at the end, um, just to kind of, on a personal level, getting away from, um, in Bathsheba, but you know, for you, uh, you know, 65 years wrapping up, you know, beautiful family, um, a lot of success for you. What, what brings you the most joy? Oh, for me, I think helping people. I think I've been very blessed in my career to have a career where I'm paid to help other people be the best versions of themselves. So there is great, tremendous joy, uh, in that along the way. And you know, what's amazing to me too, is everybody has the opportunity to be a force, a positive force in their life. And so, you know, my goal is always to be the most positive person uh, in the room because of my my faith in Christ and because of my walk with him. That, that, that can apply to any one of us, you know, to be known as a person who's really positive. So I get joy from helping other people along the way and from learning. And uh, at the end of the day, you can when you go to bed at night, knowing that you made a little bit of a difference in the lives of the people around you. So that's my that's, that's awesome. my joy factor. I love it, man. Very uh, selfless. 
mentality. Um, you mentioned Atomic Habits as a, as a book. Um, that's been mentioned a couple times. James Clear, it's a great one. Any other uh, any you know, top book recommendations that if someone's like, hey, Clint, you know, what should I read? Or maybe something you're reading currently that's really resonating. I just got a new book called Rethinking Success by uh, Douglas Holliday. And it's just come out. I, I had an opportunity to hear him speak at a, at a gathering. And, and so I got a copy of the book and I just started. It looks very, very promising. He's a Christian man, and uh, but he's very successful as an investment banker. He's worked in a couple White Houses and that sort of thing. Uh, but I would just say that that's a great book. Now, I'd throw out a book, too, if you're really interested in some of the social things. There's two books I would recommend. One is Dreamland. And I read it last summer, and uh, it is an amazing book about the opioid epidemic. And when you read it, it will change how you look at all of these things, especially addiction. And uh, there's also a book called The Framework for Understanding Poverty by Ruby Payne. And so I've really, the last couple of years, put a lot of energy and time. And I've always been a community server, but I'm trying to understand some of the underlying factors that put some people in life in very difficult spots. So it's a really, it's a, it's a, a book that will help you kind of frame up uh, some of the root causes of societal difficulties. And then I would be remiss if I didn't throw out uh, the successful career survival guide. And, and uh, that was my most recent book from a couple of years ago. And I know Nick, you have a copy of it. I think I saw you using it to keep your door open at the office, uh, propped underneath <laughs> there. But at the end of the day, it, that that in that book, it really goes back to and clarifies the discussion points that we've had about making sure that we're on mission and doing the things necessary for career success. And so, again, you know me; I'm not a self promoter, but I think I've had so much feedback the last couple months since we've been in this pandemic about getting back to basics. And I think it has strategies for going back to work that are very, very useful and very, very meaningful. And that's coming to me awesome. from others. So I can, I can pass it on. So all that to say, Nick, I'm a blessed man. I love it. Well, um, speaking of blessings, any, is there a, I know you have had many life verses. You've mentioned a lot of verses in our conversation today. Is there, is there one central thing for you that you've kept kind of front and center throughout your life? Um, you know, I think it goes back to love the Lord, the God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and body, and love thy neighbor as thyself. If we do that, I'll tell you what, a lot of good stuff happens in our life. The other thing, too, is a practical verse, James 119, uh, you know, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, if we apply that to our relationship with our kids, our spouse in the workplace, life gets better. Mm -hmm. Quick to hear slow to speak love it, and really slow to anger. And that's a good, and by the way, everybody, when I do my executive coaching, regardless of where a person's at faith wise, that's a verse I have them read and think and dwell on. Are you quick to hear? Are you quick to listen? Are you slow to speak and slow to anger? So I think important life lessons. Oh, so good. Thank you, Clint. It's, um, your, your enthusiasm and your energy are, are, um, so uplifting. And I'm just so thankful to have gotten to know you. I think I first met you through life work leadership way back when, and, um, you know, up to, up to today's conversation, I just appreciate you, what you're doing, the impact you're making, and, uh, just look forward to seeing what the next chapter of your life, you know, has for you. And, uh, hey, me, me too. And you know what, and for all your listeners out there, it's really, uh, that you would invest some time in this listening to me is, is humbling. Thank you for the gift of your time. And, uh, you know, you know, we've been doing mission work in Haiti for a very long time. So if we were in Haiti and I wrapped up this conversation, I would say to you, which means it's my privilege to be with you. Love it. Thank you. Well, as we, as we close down, would you mind, uh, 
closing us in a word of prayer. Okay, yeah, thanks. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And Lord, let us be truly thankful, regardless of where we're at in life, for the blessings that we possess because of our walk with you. And Lord, let us be the men that you would have us be. And Lord, we would pray these things in your son's name. Amen.